Thank you, Nate. I'd like to have us open to our text for this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. If you're following along in the Bibles here in the pews, it's on page number 807. And it's incredibly good to be back with you this week. Supposedly, public speaking is the number one fear in the U.S., but I would much rather be up here than where I was last week. So, <laughs> We're continuing our Lenten sermon series, and we'll continue that with Jesus' words here in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples back then, as well as to us as his disciples today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you something to eat, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you did not give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, a a few years ago, I stumbled across uh, the scandalous yet mesmerizing story of Anna Delvey, a German heiress to a $65 million fortune from the years of 2013 to 17. uh, Delvey made waves on the New York uh, fashion and social scenes. She was a central figure at numerous posh parties during that time frame, a tenant at some of the city's most luxurious hotels, and close personal friends with entrepreneurs, socialites, celebrities, and influencers of all types. Chronicling her life of luxury for those who followed her on social media, Delvey seemed to have it all. The only problem is that none of it was true. First, Delvey wasn't a German heiress. In fact, she wasn't even German. While she had lived in Germany for part of her childhood, she was actually originally from the Russian working-class town of Domodedovo, which is just south of Moscow. 
Second, she wasn't an heiress either. While she had told people in New York that she stood to inherit a fortune from her wealthy parents, it turns out that her dad is actually just a small business owner in Germany, and her mom is a stay-at-home parent. And her name isn't Anna Delvey either. It's actually Anna Sorokin. So you might be wondering, how is it that she was able to spend four years pretending to be someone that she wasn't? And that's actually the answer. She simply pretended. She faked it. She acted like she was some sort of rich heiress, when in reality she wasn't. And because she acted like it, everyone around her simply believed it. She lived that way for four years. Fake it until you make it, right? Well, in the same way in our text for this morning, Jesus says some of those who follow him do something similar. They claim his name, they pretend to be his disciples, they act like Christians, and yet it turns out they're really not. And the difference, the way you can tell, the way you can determine who is or isn't really following him, Jesus says here, is actually pretty simple. You can tell by their love. You see, that's really what Jesus is talking about here in this teaching about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. He's talking about the Christian expectation, the Christian need, the Christian imperative to love others. After all, that's actually how Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets just a few chapters before this, right? In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus takes all 613 commands of the Torah, of the, of the first five books of the Old Testament. And he takes all of the teaching of the prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and Amos, and all the others, and then all the commentary and interpretation that had grown up around them over the centuries since. And he summarizes all of it by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is that when you really boil it down, that's what being a godly person looks like. That's what it means to be a God-honoring person. That's what it means to live out the way of life that God has given us. That's what it means to live as the kind of people that God intended and designed us to be as human beings. It means that first, we love God, And then because we love God, we also love one another. That's the two-part command Jesus says that everything else hinges on. Love of God and love of neighbor. And so as a result, that's also what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to really be his disciple. That's what it means to truly be a Christian. It means, first of all, to love God, and then secondly, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when you really think about it, that's not a very high bar, is it? Maybe we sort of feel like it is. Okay, loving God, that part we get. Loving our neighbor, that's maybe a little bit challenging. But actually, it doesn't really seem to be the case. Because as Christians, our love of neighbor doesn't necessarily have to be anything crazy. It doesn't have to be anything spectacular or impressive or dazzling. right? When you look at the kinds of things that Jesus describes in this passage, it seems that our acts of love and service as Christians towards others can actually be pretty mundane. You know, It's things like providing meals for those who are hungry or giving someone a cup of cold water. 
It's offering hospitality to a stranger and providing clothes for those who don't have them. It's taking care of those who are sick or hurting and visiting those in prison. And when you really think about it, those aren't crazy, monumental, overwhelming acts that are reserved just for a special few. Instead, they're actually pretty simple. Quoting the early Christian preacher Chrysostom, Fred Bruner writes about that in his commentary on this passage. He says, the services are all so basic As Chrysostom first pointed out, we do not hear, I was sick and you healed me, or I was in prison and you liberated me. Big miracles aren't happening here. Little ministries are. And yet it is precisely in these little ministries that the miracle of the big mystery, eternal salvation, occurs. A little later, Bruner goes on. He writes, feeding ministries, sheltering ministries, and visitation ministries, these basic, mundane, and unflashy services are given Jesus' highest honors here. Don't we tend to think that the great Christ-centered speakers, healers, and miracle workers are the major men and women of God? We may be, this is the part I really like about this quote, we may be looking at Jesus' favorite people in these simple givers of food and drink, in providers of clothing and shelter, and in visitors of the sick and shamed. Whatever we call them, these ministries are within the reach of every one of us. Every person has access to Christ through a needy person. And as a pastor, that kind of got me thinking. You see, one of the contemporary Christian leaders in the church today who I have a lot of respect for is uh, former mega-pastor Francis Chan. Most people know him as the, uh, the best-selling author of the book Crazy Love uh, back in 2008. But before that, he founded and grew Cornerstone Community Church in Simi Valley, California. And despite starting with only 30 members in 1994, by 2010, it was one of the largest churches in Ventura County. And that's when, right at the height of the church's growth and success, Jan decided to step away. Um, Now, unlike similar situations where unfortunately a pastor might step down uh, because of some sort of controversy or moral failure, that's not what happened. There was no scandal, no misconduct, no secret affair. There was no wrongdoing, offense, or crime. Uh, There was nothing improper or indecent, and there was no theological change or, or slow slide towards agnosticism or unbelief the way that sometimes happens. Instead, Chan simply felt led by God to leave the church that he had founded and grown. And after leaving for a few years, Chan and his family went to work uh, in San Francisco, starting house churches there and caring for the poor of the city. But then, just a few years ago, in 2020, they decided to move to Hong Kong. They lived and worked in a part of the city called Sham Shupo, which is one of the city's poorest areas. And it's also where Chan's mother used to do ministry back in the 1950s. And it's where Chan would probably still be doing ministry if the Chinese-controlled Hong Kong authorities hadn't gotten sick of his work, revoked his visa, and deported him back here to the States only a year after they had arrived. Chan has publicly stated he intends to go back to Hong Kong the first chance he gets. And that story came to mind while I was reading Bruner's commentary on this passage because it struck me that, at least according to this text, Francis Chan might have actually given up a lesser ministry of preaching and teaching for a greater ministry of serving and caring for the poor. You see, this renowned, famous, successful pastor, teacher, and leader chose to leave the pulpit, chose to step down, chose to stop doing the kind of work that I do to do something else, something more mundane, but something that this text seems to say is more important, which is to serve and care for the least of these. 
And that was personally quite humbling and thought-provoking for me. Because if Bruner's right that this passage gives us a picture of some of Jesus' favorite people, what that means is that those of you who do the kinds of ministry that Jesus describes here, caring for the poor, hungry, and thirsty, welcoming and offering hospitality to the stranger, visiting and providing for the sick, needy, and the prisoner, those of you who do those kinds of things better than I do, and there are many of you, actually accomplish greater and more lauded work for the kingdom than I do as a preacher and teacher. In other words, it might be that we lift up the wrong people as celebrities in the church. It might be that we praise our Christian heroes for the wrong reasons, and it might be that we value the wrong sorts of gifts and talents as Christians. It might not be that it's this kind of upfront leadership, speaking and teaching, that's most valued or celebrated in the kingdom of God. Instead, it might be the mundane, ordinary, everyday acts of ministry that all of us can participate in. And yet, despite that, despite their mundaneness, their ordinary, accessible, everyday nature, and their ability for everyone to participate in, not everyone does these kinds of ministries, do they? And Jesus doesn't really mince words about that here. To those who do do these kinds of ministries, feeding the hungry and thirsty, practicing hospitality, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, visiting the prisoner, to those who do those sorts of things, Jesus says, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. But to those who don't do these kinds of things, he says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that those who do these kinds of things, those who serve in these kinds of ways, those who care for others in love are already in this life, in the here and now, in this world, living as citizens of his kingdom. And as a result, when that kingdom eventually comes in full, they are the ones who will receive it as their inheritance. Meanwhile, those who don't do these kinds of things and therefore do not live as citizens of Christ's kingdom will not inherit that kingdom when it comes. They will instead be cursed and sent away from Jesus to eternal fire and punishment. And that sounds harsh, right? But the point really is pretty simple. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that if you want to be a kingdom person who inherits the things of the kingdom when they come, then you need to live like a kingdom person and do the things of the kingdom now. You need to anticipate the kingdom. Faking, pretending, and acting like a kingdom person when you're really not isn't good enough because it turns out that the king will know the difference. That brings up an important question though, which is this. Isn't that basically works righteousness? You know what I mean when I use that term, works righteousness? It's basically the idea that as Christians we have to work for the righteousness that we receive from God, right? We have to earn it, we have to deserve it, we have to make ourselves worthy of God's love, worthy of his mercy, worthy of the righteousness that he bestows on us. Basically the idea is that you have to do enough good things in your life to outweigh all the bad things so that eventually God will reward you with righteousness and including you in his kingdom. That's works righteousness. It's working your way into a righteous relationship with God. 
God. In other words, works righteousness is kind of a transactional view of our relationship with God. It's a view of our relationship with God that says, okay, God, I'll give you this many good works, this many good deeds, this many good actions over this many years of my life, and in return, I expect that you will make me righteous and include me in your kingdom because I've earned it. I deserve it. I put in the time, I did the work, and now you need to give me what I want. In other words, works righteousness is an approach to God that ultimately tries to put him in our debt and force him to give us the things that we desire because we've done such a good job of living up to his expectations. And truth be told, that's how pretty much every other religion in the world works, okay? In Hinduism, the whole goal of Hinduism is is called moksha or enlightenment and there's a certain set of practices in order to achieve that enlightenment. In Buddhism, it's called the Noble Eightfold Path. The goal in Buddhism is perfection and the Noble Eightfold Path is how you get there. It's how you become perfect. In Islam, it's the five pillars. In Scientology, it's something called the bridge to total freedom. Even in Judaism, even in Judaism, it's following the Torah, the 613 commands of the Old Testament. In each of those religions, to some degree or another, the idea is God's up here, we're down here, and here's the whole path, the set of practices, the plan for how you get up to God and enter into a righteous relationship with him. You work your way up to him. And, and doesn't that seem to be what Jesus is saying here? You know, you've got to feed the hungry, you've got to give drink to the thirsty, you've got to welcome in the stranger, you've got to clothe the naked, you have to take care of the sick, you have to visit the prisoner, and then, if you do all of that, you'll receive eternal life. Doesn't that seem to be what Jesus is saying here? Well, no. That's the short answer. The longer answer is that Jesus doesn't structure what he says here the way that those other works righteousness religions do. He's not saying, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit the prisoner, so that you'll inherit the kingdom of God and receive eternal life. Instead, what he's saying here is, do all those things because you already have received the kingdom. You already have eternal life. You already have been saved. You already are a Christian. That's God's grace to you. It's a free gift. You don't earn it, but now live like it. That's what Jesus is saying here. In essence, he's telling us that if we're Christians, we need to live like Christians. Our lives need to reflect our identity in Christ. What we do needs to match up with who we say we are. And one of the easiest ways to tell if that's happening, says Jesus, is if we live out the kind of loving service to others that he describes here. As Klein Snodgrass writes in his commentary on this passage, this picture of judgment was intended to urge the disciples to know that only faithful obedience to the will of the Father, obedience marked by love and mercy, would suffice at judgment. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples back then, just as a question, who are his disciples today? It's it's us, right? This passage is intended for us. It's motivation for us. Snodgrass goes on, he writes, in keeping with Jesus' rejection of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who were all about works righteousness, that's the whole thing that the Pharisees were all about, this gospel is more concerned about the lack of authentic obedience than about anyone trying to earn salvation by works. To raise the problem of works righteousness in relation to this passage is to foist upon Jesus and Matthew a concern that is not theirs. Their concern is a discipleship that is evidenced in love and mercy. 
The judgment evidenced in this narrative does not ask if a person has accumulated X number of merciful acts, but asks instead, what kind of person are you? Identity is always the issue. Are you a person characterized by the love and mercy evidenced in Jesus' kingdom, which is really what faith is all about? Or are you one characterized by no concern for those in need? Salvation requires such acts. The point is that a person cannot claim the identity without evidencing it in acts of mercy. Or as Martin Luther is supposedly to have once said, as Christians we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Instead, as Christians, our faith has to be evidenced, lived out, and accompanied by actions of love that make it real in our everyday lives. Truth be told, that's actually part of what the season of Lent is about. You know, throughout this series, I've been saying that Lent is a time of confession, a time of repentance, a time of self-evaluation and examination. Well, this is actually one of those areas of self-evaluation and self-examination. As Christians, we need to ask ourselves questions like, am I a loving person? Would those who know and interact with me on a daily basis say that I'm a loving person? Do I treat people, other people, the way that Jesus describes here? Do I do the kinds of things that he describes here? And if not, am I willing to? Is my life producing the kind of fruit that Jesus expects? Because if not, it's time to repent and then start. After all, as we see in this passage, the stakes are high. Jesus says here that nothing less than our eternal salvation hangs in the balance. And yet, that also leads us to the gospel this morning. You see, there's an important phrase here in verse 34. It's kind of one of those blink and you'll miss it sorts of things, but it's another indication that Jesus isn't teaching works righteousness in this passage. And that's because when Jesus looks at the sheep on his right and invites them to take up their inheritance in the kingdom, he begins by saying, come, you who are blessed, by my Father. And that's key. That's important. That tells us something about the nature of our relationship with God. You see, contrary to a works righteousness approach, us living the way that Jesus describes here doesn't actually start with us. We're not invited to an inheritance in the kingdom because we're such worthy people. Even as good church going, you know, now twice a Sunday Christians. Okay? It's not because we're so worthy. We're not given eternal life because we've somehow earned it. We're not people who bless others with our love and acts of service because we're so inherently good. Isn't God lucky to have us? Rather, we're people who love and bless others because we first have been loved and blessed ourselves. As Jesus says here, we've been loved and blessed by God. That's the starting point. We've been blessed with his grace, blessed with his mercy, blessed with his forgiveness. In our own time of need, when we were hungry and thirsty, alienated and alone, naked, sick, and imprisoned by our sin, he came to us, loved us, served us, cared for us. That's the blessing we've received from God. He made the first move, he took the first step, he got the ball rolling. It all starts with him, it always does. 
Now, it can't end there. That's Jesus' whole point in this passage. We can't just receive God's grace and then do nothing. But it does start there. It starts with God's love and blessing towards us. And then it's in response to that love and blessing that we have received from our Father that we love and bless others as well. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it looks like. That's how we love God and love neighbor. That's how we live out this identity that we have graciously been given in Christ. We receive Christ's love towards us and then we respond to that love with love of our own. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you make the first move. You made the first move in creation when you made this world, this universe out of nothing for no reason other than you wanted to. You made us in your image not because we deserve to be created, but for no reason other than you desired to. And Lord, after our fall into sin, when you would have been entirely justified in letting all of us walk away into our own judgment, you instead promised us a savior. You sent us your son, Jesus Christ, and you have restored us as your people, again, because you wanted to. And then you gave us your Holy Spirit to sanctify us and help us live as people who can reflect that grace. And Lord, indeed, that is what we pray. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us live as people who reflect your grace. Pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.